0: If you would open your copy of the Scriptures and join me in 1 Samuel chapter 24, this morning we are going to look at three chapters in the book of Samuel, chapter 24, 25, and 26. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe as Joel was praying, you were thinking, what do, why do we pray for people in Albania? Do we know anybody there? Is our church supporting anybody there? Well, we pray for them because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for them because God has called us as his people to pray for our brothers and sisters in the scriptures. The Same reason that we gather together here as a body is to not just get something for ourselves, but to actually minister to the brothers and sisters who are here. And so by praying for churches around the world, for Christians around the world, even if we don't know them, we are actually just simply obeying God, which is exactly why we go through books like 1 Samuel and we work on studying passages passages of Scripture which teach us truths that uh, relate to all of us. So this morning, as we look through these chapters, I want you to just slow down a little bit in life if you can, and just think for a moment with me what it is that God is trying to tell us from a really, really old book of the Bible. I mean, it's not even in the New Testament, right? As though the new is new and the old is old in our terms, in our phrases. But what is this story of twice we see in chapter 24, we see David is being hunted yet again by Saul, And he catches Saul, actually, unawares, in an embarrassing moment as Saul's trying to use the bathroom in a cave. He happens to choose the cave that David and his men are hiding in. Ironic, isn't it? Then in chapter 26, a similar situation happens where the hunted one becomes the one who has power of life and death. Saul and his men are asleep in a field. And David and his men know they're there and come down and sneak into the camp and they're able to get so close to Saul without his notice that they actually take the spear that's stuck in the ground in his head and the jug of water that's by him. In the cave, David was able to cut off a part of Saul's robe while he was doing his business. The point of what we're seeing here is that In 1 Samuel, the scales have somewhat tipped. David, chapter 19, is afraid of Saul, and he's running for his life. He actually left his house in the middle of night because his wife told him, my dad is going to kill you, not for anything you've done to me, but because he wants you dead. You need to leave. And from that time on, we see in chapter 20, chapter 21, 22, and 23, that David is this young man. Self-conscious young man who's just terrified by Saul chasing him. He doesn't know what to do. He goes to the priest at the tabernacle. He gets an old sword and some bread. And then he runs and he goes and finds some other people to help him out. And it's just on and on. David is always reacting to situations. Saul is kind of driving this thing. And then it all changes in chapters 24, 25, and 26. Because even though Saul is hunting David, it is David who now has the power of life and death. I want to just ask you a simple question. Maybe it's not simple. If you have an enemy, someone that is bullying you at school, someone that is harassing you at work or in the neighborhood, if there is someone that you would classify as an enemy... Just picture them for a moment right now. What would you do to that person if you had the power to do anything to them? That's a scary thought, isn't it? Someone who has, for years, made your life a living nightmare. Abusive partner. Someone who's ripped you off and stolen things and you had the power to do anything you wanted to them, what would you do? That's why First Samuel resonates with us today. Maybe you don't have a King Saul who's chasing you with 3,000 elite troops. Maybe you are not on the run for your life, but you do have someone who makes your life miserable, And in these passages, what we observe in David's life is instructive for us in our life. We sang these songs, and I honestly, I I felt as we were singing them, the power of the truth, even as the scripture was being read to us. And this, this text is worthy of us to study, but I feel very insufficient to expound it to you this morning. You see, when we have an opportunity to trust God not only with our future, but with our present, it really challenges us to wait upon the Lord for him to act. Most of us, given the opportunity to right wrongs or to chart a new path, would grab it with both hands and go without a second thought. But I know if you read this text throughout this week that you saw this progression in David's life from chapter 24, where David and his men, as they sneak down there and they tell David, This is the moment you've been waiting for, David. God has delivered your enemy into your hand in verse four. And David, David has this opportunity to kill Saul while he is indisposed. David cuts off a part of his robe, and then his heart struck him. That means his conscience made it clear to David that he had sinned by what he did. Now, perhaps David is playing the games of a young man. I want to get so close, and I want to see how close I can get, without them knowing. It's a little bit of a trophy. Some commentators think that by cutting off a part of the robe, David is actually symbolically saying, Your authority as king has now been transferred to me, and that's why David felt guilty, because he was usurping the throne at that point. Either way, whether it was a prank or whether it was a purposeful, intentional understanding of a reality, David's heart said you have sinned in what you did. David says this, The Lord forbid... That I should do this thing to my Lord, the king's or the Lord's anointed, to pour out put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so with these words, David persuaded his men and did not permit them to attack Saul. Now, if you go back to chapter twenty-six, we see that David, in a second opportunity to take Saul's life, actually expands on the reason why he should not do what he was offered to do. His soldiers said, This is the moment. Your enemy is right here in front of you. You can take him. Second time, David has this opportunity. Everybody's asleep in the field. He sneaks down. It says in the text that God's spirit put them in a deep sleep. So David is given another opportunity. And he says this as he is there. Chapter 26 and verse 9. David's nephew, Abishai, his sister's son, is one of his soldiers. And he says, hey, Saul's spear is right by his head. It will just one blow. He will not move. There will be no noise. I can take care of this, David. David says, no, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives... The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that's at his head in the jar of water and let us go. So David adds a little extra in what he says to Abishai in verse 10. He now understands That something is going to happen to Saul, but it won't be by his own hand. David has determined he will not kill the king, even though he has been anointed as his successor. Even though the king has truly disqualified himself from being king by disobedience to the king of kings and the lord of lords. So what has changed in David's mind from I can't touch him because he's the Lord's anointed to now I can't touch him because he's the Lord's anointed and I'm confident that one day he will die at God's hand, in God's time, in God's way and I don't have to take any action. Did you notice that as you read through this? It seems like David's theology is expanding a little bit. His understanding of what God has promised to him or what God would do for him has somewhat developed and changed. And I wonder what caused that. Well, if you notice, the gap between chapter 24 and chapter 26 is actually chapter 25, And so I think chapter 25 acts as a hinge like on a door and it connects these two passages where David is given an opportunity to take Saul's life and he showed him mercy instead of retribution. So let's dig into chapter 25 in our time this morning and let's see what would be there that would change David so much so that not only would he say, I can't do it because God's got his hand on him, but that I am absolutely confident that God will himself take care of this. As you go to chapter 25, we're told that Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. The time of the judges is over. The last of the judges has passed off the scene. Now it's just the man who anointed Israel's first two kings and established the monarchy, he is gone And now all that Israel has left is the monarchy. And we've seen how well that's gone so far, right? So the question kind of, the reader would hear this and read this and they would be like, okay, if Samuel's not there, who will hold the kings into check? Who will be the counselors to the king and help them when they get into dilemmas? How will this all take its place? Well, that's for us in another time, but that's just a little footnote there. And then the text goes on to say that David went down to the wilderness of Paran. We're introduced to a couple new characters in chapter 25. It's no longer just about Saul and David. We're introduced to a man named Nabal, or that's his nickname that he goes by, maybe behind his back, and his wife, Abigail. And These two characters couldn't be more imperfectly matched in marriage. Perhaps in all of the scriptures, you don't see a husband and wife introduced who are such a poor fit for one another. You see, as wise and beautiful as Abigail is, her counterpart, her husband, is a brute. He's contemptuous. He's argumentative. He's arrogant. He's mean. He's harsh. All the beauty and the wisdom that she possesses, it's like he has absolutely none of it. And then we see it played out. It's not the first time. Perhaps, well, hopefully none of us are dealing with this in our, in our homes, right? Here we go. Nabal and has a lot of livestock, we're told, in chapter 25. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. And at, there's a certain time of year when it's time to give the sheep a haircut. And it's a time of celebration. Uh, there's going to be a lot of work, there's going to be a lot of feasting that goes on. And David and his men, unbeknownst to Nabal or not, we don't know, they've been keeping watch over his sheep and his shepherds in the wilderness. They've made sure that uh, they're not attacked by any marauding parties that run through the area. There's not uh, an animal that's going to be coming and uh, wolves hunting the sheep, things like that. David and his men say, okay, this is the time where we would get compensation. And what's interesting for us to know is that this is not a unique situation. In that day and age, sheep shearing was a time of festivities, and if if someone was benefiting the, the sheep owner, they would be compensated at this time of year and during this season. So David and his men, he coaches his young men. He says, I want to give you... I want you to introduce yourself as my men, and I want you to uh, show some diplomacy in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 25. I want you to say shalom to Nabal, and I want you to say shalom to Nabal's family, and shalom to all that he has. I want you to let him know that my heart for this man is peace be upon him, his family, and all that he has. And then in verse 7, I want you to begin a process of negotiation. It's kind of obscured in the English, but really what's taking place here is that David is saying, I have shown peace to you. I have protected your men and your livestock. And now I'm asking for you to show a little bit of kindness to us. Whatever you have on hand. Notice that there's no demands made of a certain amount. David's not asking for X amount of dollars or X amount of food or sheep or whatever and then he says in verse 8 tell him to check with your men if this is not true and then he uses the language of your son which is an invitation on David's part to say hey uh, Nabal why don't we enter into a covenant relationship you and I why, why don't we make this a little bit more of a permanent thing I will will act as your son. I will take care of your sheep. I want to help you and be a blessing to you. As you look at verses 9 through 22 of chapter 25, we find out that Nabal, um, his nickname is fool. And he played the fool in what he did and how he responded. He's not even willing to give David anything. He telegraphs his egotism in verse 11. Now, we see seven times in the English standard version, the ESV of which we preach out of here, he uses the word I or my seven times. And there's another time where it's implied. Let me just read this for you from verse 11. The ball says this, who, are, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Verse 10. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? and, implied, should I give it to men who come from I do not know where? This man says there is no way you are going to get a thread from me, not a scrap, not a crumb. David's men returned to tell him of this and, and 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 it's true. Nabal didn't ask David to do this. They had not negotiated in any terms. David took all this on himself while he was in the wilderness trying to preserve his own life. He's actually doing good to others. He The heart of a shepherd we see that David has where he's not benefiting from this. He's not taking sheep out of the flock to feed his men. He's not getting paid to do this. He's hoping that that one day there will be some kind of compensation, but there are no guarantees. The issue isn't that Nabal said no to David. The issue is how he said it. When word gets back to David, we see quickly that he says, Every man put on your sword. You don't even have to have code language to know what that means, right? Bad things are about to happen for Nabal and everyone in his household. And what's interesting is that as soon as David hears, he springs into action. This man will die today, and so will all the males in his house. And then we're introduced to that beautiful and wise wife, Abigail, yet again. Because in verses 14 through 20, one of Nebal's servants tells her exactly what had just happened. And he warns her, there is only going to be bad coming from this if you don't do something. And as soon as she hears, she springs into action. But she is acting in order to save her household. And ironically, even David. So let's look at verses 20 of chapter 25. She, re, she prepares all this food, a lot of it, in verses 18 and 19. She sends people ahead of her and she comes after them. And as soon as David comes down to the foothills of the mountain and he's about ready to hit the flatland, that's when Abigail meets him. David has 400 men with him, men who have weapons, men who are angry, men who have been treated poorly, And here stands one woman in front of them. This is just interesting on so many levels. And what does this woman do? As soon as she saw David, verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, "'On me alone, my Lord.'" be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. She's just, she's not stalling. She's begging for time and she's doing it in a way that she's showing David respect that Nabal did not do. She's on her face. She's taking the posture of someone who is deferring to a greater. This isn't about misogyny, men and women, okay? This is about customs of that day. Just give me a moment. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. She doesn't defend her husband. I mean, maybe she's had to do this a lot. She's used to apologizing and trying to smooth things over for this bum. Let's just call him what he is. And so she begs David to just hear her out for a moment. She's asking him to just pause and temper what he's about to do with what she wants to share with him. She doesn't defend her husband. She admits he is who he is. And then she says in verse 26, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives... Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now, that's interesting. This phrase, blood guilt and saving with your own hand, is repeated three times in this chapter. She's like, God has stopped you from shedding blood that was innocent. God stopped you from committing murder, David, which is the two opportunities that we saw he had in, verse, in chapter 24 and chapter 26, right? He could have killed Saul as he used the bathroom. He could have killed Saul as he was sleeping. In both cases, that would have been murder because they weren't fighting in a battle. He would have killed him. Now he wants to murder a guy for disrespecting him. We'll get to how is it that David could justify this in a moment because you just have to wrestle with this. If Saul is Lord's anointed and twice he's just dropped in his lap and he can't touch him, but this guy, this guy, no, he's not the Lord's anointed. I'm justified. Let's go, all 400 of you. We're going to go kill him. I mean, how does David get that mad? Well, just a moment. Just hang on to that for a moment. So he says, she says to him that the Lord has preserved you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. And then she says, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men. Who follow my Lord, please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from a hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. You see wisdom here. She's not just brought a present with her. She's just not adopted the posture. She's also done so, so much more. She's an intercessor. She's taking responsibility for her husband upon herself. David, you don't understand. He is exactly what you think he is. But I didn't know your servants were there or else I would have intervened. David, please listen to what I've got to say to you because it means life and death, not just for Nabal, but for you, David. I'm worried about you when God does keep his promise and he makes you king and he gives you the power of life and death. I want you to have a clean conscience. She's also a supplicant, not just an intercessor. She's saying, please accept my gift in verse 27. And please forgive your servant. She's showing discernment and wisdom. She knew that the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, would reward, establish, and protect David. And this is such a rich statement that she makes at the end of verse 28 and 29. A sure house, that David was going to have an enduring dynasty. This doesn't even happen until way into 2 Samuel that those promises are made by God to David. David is God's anointed fighting God's battles. That's the word on the street in Hebron. That's what the Jews are thinking about David, that evil is not in him. We saw in chapters 17 that after he fought the Goliath in chapter 18, I'm sorry, he, everything that David does is good in the sight of all Israel. She's... His character is known here in the far reaches of the nation of Israel. And his life is bound in the care of Yahweh. And she even uses this sling language as though she wants David to remember, just as God delivered you from the giant, just as you fought Israel's battle there, God will deliver you from all your enemies. And he will just throw them out like a rock flies out of a sling. So all these people seem to understand things about David. Both Saul and David rec- or Saul and Abigail recognize that God's hand is on David. If you go back to chapter 24, when Saul is told after he leaves the cave, David says, "Hey, you see this remnant of your robe? Look, 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 there's a corner I cut off. That's how close you were to death. I spared you because you are the Lord's anointed, and I wanted you to know I have nothing against you." I'm not trying to kill you. All the things you're hearing about me, they're not true. I'm just asking you to leave me alone, please. Chapter 26, a similar situation where David says, hey, again, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. I don't have animosity toward you. Why are you chasing me? I've done nothing wrong. Here's Abigail. She's put herself in harm's way. She's defenseless. She only has a moment to change her mind. But with her posture, her words, her gifts, and her wisdom, and by calling forth David to think about the morality, the rightness of what he is intending to do, she actually saves her household. Her character stands in stark contrast to that of her husband. She brought an apology and a gift. She made a request for forgiveness She gave him a legal and moral reminder. And her wise actions have basically, one woman standing against David and his 400 men has brought David to a standstill. She's basically made it impossible for him to go through with his plans. I think what we see here in chapter 25 is a woman who is a precursor to Christ and his work. And here's what I mean about that. She was an intercessor. She stood between God and man, David and her husband. Jesus stands between God and man, right? He's interceding for sinners. We are in the story, we are Nabals. We are fools because we've sinned with absolute recklessness against God. We don't care that we lie, steal, cheat, covet, commit adultery. We don't care that we're immoral or ruthless or proud or arrogant. Man, these are just the tools of our trade. It's the currency of our world. But we have sinned far greater against God than Nabal did against David. We we deserve a far greater judgment because God's holiness has been impugned by our sin. And here is Jesus standing between us saying, Father, look to me. Put their guilt on me. Let me bear the weight, even though they deserve it. Even though they're exactly what you say they are, God. They are bums. But God is so much more of an intercessor and, and a substitution than Abigail could ever hope to be. Because she's speaking out of her knowledge of her her husband. But Jesus speaks out of both his knowledge of the holiness of God that's been offended and the sinfulness of man that deserves wrath. He knows us so much better. He's done all this to bring access to us to the Father. Bring us to the Father's access. Not only does he fully understand how we've offended God and knows us intimately and our weaknesses and our struggles when he advocates to the Father for us. But Jesus doesn't minimize or hide our sin. And by trying to make a bridge between God and man, Jesus is not diminishing God's holiness in trying to broker peace. Not only does Jesus have access to the Father to mediate for us, but he also possesses the righteousness to be a substitute for us. He dies the fool's death. He was rejected. He was scorned. He was hated. And he was so mistreated. And yet he did this all knowingly so that we might have peace with God. He offers peace between a holy and offended God and the very people who deserve judgment. Only Jesus can broker that kind of relationship because of his righteousness. A righteousness Abigail didn't have in spite of her wisdom a righteousness Abigail would never have. Jesus is a far better mediator and substitute. So the question is, if you see in the text that Abigail's work is a shadow of Jesus' greater work, have you confessed your sin to God and pled for his forgiveness in the name of Jesus? That's the only way you can be right with God. You see, coming to church, giving to the church, doing good things in the community, volunteering, giving your nights and weekends up to tutor little kids, helping people wherever it may be. These don't enhance our standing in God's eyes. We need a righteousness that is not our own, an otherly righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to Christ. Apart from Jesus' mediating work, our sin against God will certainly lead to experiencing his righteous wrath. There will be no one to stop him if we don't repent and cry out for Jesus. And that's the soberness of this text. There is no hope for Nabal if Abigail goes around the wrong side of the mountain or if David and the men don't see her she's obscured by some rock or something like that. If she's not there at the right place at the right time, he is dead. And this is true for us. If we don't recognize the fact that God has orchestrated things so that we could hear him right now saying, be reconciled to me, turn to me, know that I will forgive you because of who Christ is, then we face a reality that Nabal faced. So what does David do in response to this woman who shows such wisdom and such courage and such action? He blesses her. Verse 32. He blessed first the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of hosts, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Notice this, Shalom. Peace be to you and your house. So let's just think about this in the last few minutes. Let's think about what changed in David's heart that made him so passive in regards to Saul, and so active in regards to Nabal. Now, I can only guess here. So please understand, the Bible doesn't tell us why David took the liberty he did with Nabal. Maybe it was because he wasn't the Lord's anointed. Maybe it was because David had been so tired of taking stuff from Saul, this worm, decides he's going to stand up against David and he's just having a bad day. You ever been there? The dog gets the first response from you when you get home from a bad day at work and it's not a pat on the head, it's like a kick. Get away from me. Leave me alone. A rudeness to your wife or your kids. And you just had enough and it's all going to come out upon them, right? Maybe that's what was going on here. Either way what David had planned for Nabal was his death. And what made David change? It was an understanding that just as he had to trust God with his own life in relationship to Saul, he had to trust God with his own life in relationship to his fellow man, Nabal. If David chose to take a life in murder, he would be guilty of that and therefore disqualified as being king. If David chose to take a life, he would then be saving himself and no faith would be required on his part to wait upon the Lord. Something changed in David's mind from chapter 24 to chapter 25, and it was this, I think. I think it was the wisdom of Abigail reminding David of promises God had made to him that connected him to just wait upon the Lord. He will avenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. I don't have to take up every offense that's been thrown at me. I don't have to vindicate myself on social media for things that I've said or not said or done. I don't have to go to the bully in school and challenge him to a schoolyard fight. I don't have to do these things. I can choose a way that honors God and shows my defense and my trust is in him. Because it is his hand that will ultimately save. It's his hand that will ultimately deliver. And we must thank God that David has trained himself to listen to reason. He confesses that it is God who has restrained him. It is God who's orchestrated the fact that you showed up right when you did. And you stopped me in doing this. Because I was bent on his death and destruction. David, we're... Just to wrap up chapter 25, a few days later, he gets word that Nabal is dead. You see, uh, Abigail went home, and showing wisdom, she kept her lips shut for a little while until the drunkness had worn off of Nabal. And the next morning, she tells him exactly how close he was to death while he was feasting. And he has a stroke. And then 10 days later, God kills him. And then David hears about it. And what does David say? He says this, my enemy's gone? No. He says, the Lord has vindicated me. David, who will still have to wait for the Lord to do that with Saul, to vindicate David and to remove Saul and put David in his place, he will still have to wait on that. But what David saw in chapter 25 was that God sometimes chooses to act immediately to deliver his people. And that just reinforced his confidence and his encouragement that God does got this. He's got this. He's going to take care of this stuff. Now, for some of us, this is where the application comes in. For some of us, we're in a long season of taking stuff, shot after shot to the chin. And we need to read this passage, and we need to hear that David was actually able to get his head around the fact that there will be a day of reckonings. God's going to take care of this. It may not be in this life. Maybe in the next. But then there's also this glimmer of encouragement that God does give us grace when we need it. And David sees what happens to Nabal and he offers Abigail his hand in marriage. And who wouldn't want a wife who's beautiful and wise? Who wouldn't want a wife that's got it together? David, he's like, she's the total package. An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life, Proverbs 31 says. So here we we go. Let's wrap things up. As David reflects on what God has taught him, there's some wisdom for us. David had an opportunity in the wilderness to live by his own hand. All these three chapters take place in the wilderness. We move from the wilderness of Paran to others. David is just always out, away from comfort, safety, and security. And it is in an environment like that that we tend to go down to the lowest common denominator. David would have to live by his own hand, or would he? God proved over and over again that he would save David. He would preserve him whether it was with Nabal or with Saul, God was going to be the one whose hand would work for David. And I wonder if that is the way we respond to situations. Do we submit ourselves to the Lord or do we figure out a way to get what we want as quickly as we want? Are we willing to wait for the Lord's salvation? David also demonstrated the heart of a shepherd doing good to others even when it didn't benefit himself. He saved the city of Keilah, and then they ended up saying, hey, Saul, guess what? If you want David, he's here. We'll help you out. He's protected Nabal's sheep, and the guy is rude to him, and he is not going to do anything that was customary of that day to compensate those who had given such a service to him. And yet David has got the heart of a shepherd, and that is God's heart for us. He loved us while we were yet sinners. He gave His Son for us. He's shown us His faithfulness. And so I wonder if we might wrestle with this thought this afternoon. How can we develop an other-focused and protective heart in our marriages or as parents? What does this heart look like in a student, to have a shepherd's heart? Or as a working single or as an elderly person, how might we seek The welfare of those around us. Instead of it just being about us. I mean, all the pressures of living in the wilderness, and now you got 600 mouths to feed. David would be justified in being self-centered, right? Like, it is survival. And yet, he's seeking to do good to people around us. How might we be instructed to think about the welfare of those around us? Maybe it's just as simple as starting like this. As soon as we say amen at the end. You wait and you go and talk to somebody here instead of jetting for the car. Maybe it's just showing concern to pray with a brother or sister in Christ. It begins with gospel priorities. We love because he first loved us. It's also a recognition that we benefited from God's love and grace and salvation and therefore we're responsible to share that message and the good news in Christ's name. Second, the realization that even while we have needs and challenges, we also have opportunities to do good to others, both spiritually and physically. And we ought to take advantage of those opportunities. So this week, Wednesday night, people from our community that have no attachment or history or connection with South Canyon will be in our building to be taught life skills, budgeting, parenting, changing their personalities, and, and how they function and respond to life's pressures, and we have the opportunity to just fold into these experiences and just love on them in Jesus' name. It's not fancy. It's not sophisticated. It's just being kind and gracious. Our struggles mean, don't mean that we can't show mercy to others. David made a choice to trust the Lord. So how is it that you are going to live in your wilderness that God has called you? And I think I I need to repeat that. God has called you to where you are right now. God led Jesus out into the wilderness that he would be tested. God has David in the wilderness. And it's proven that God has him there because God is providing and protecting him while he's there. So while you may be going through some hard stuff right now, let me just say this yet again. You are right where God wants you to be. It's not comfortable. I get that. But find comfort in the fact that you are right where God wants you to be, which means he will meet your needs and you can trust him. You don't have to react and save yourself. From chapters 21 through 26, we see David in the wilderness, away from God's tabernacle, away from his home and his family, away from the cities that offer protection. God often uses wilderness experiences in our lives to teach his people to trust him. And if you feel separated from God and his people, and you feel vulnerable because of what's taking place in your life, please talk to me or one of the elders We'd be happy to sit down with you, to bring comfort to you, as a Jonathan did, to speak wisdom into you, as an Abigail did, to just meet physical needs. God wants you to trust him. He wants you to see that he alone can deliver. We want to run from times like this. We want the distractions Uh, Of community, we want the distractions of worship and safety, but here you are in a time and a place that God has specifically put you so that you can learn to trust him for your good and his glory. The church is such an instrumental part. David says this in chapter 26. He's like, Saul, if God has stirred you up to fight against me, I know that God will forgive me But if men are stirring you up to hate me and try to kill me, then I pray that there would be a curse upon them because what they're actually doing is they're driving me away from the church. They're driving me away from the place where God's name is known, both physically on the earth at that time in the, tr- in the nation of Israel and at the tabernacle. David is like, I'm not allowed to worship God in the midst of his people, his covenant community. I'm being shunned from it. And the only thing that's left to me is to run to other gods who are not gods. This shows us two things. He loved God and his people. He valued gathering with the people to worship. Do we. And David also recognized the fact that to estrange somebody from that kind of community, to push them out, is a dangerous thing for their soul. I mean, this is, this is a value that the church has, that we can sharpen one another through experiences and times like this. And as we look at a text like this, even though it's long and it's got a lot of story in it and a lot of narrative, there is a point to it all. The point is, will you trust the Lord to deliver you? Or will you try to do it by your own hand? And know this, there's only one right answer to that. It is to trust the Lord. Because any salvation we work with our own strength is no true salvation. You don't solve the problem by adding more to it. You need God's wisdom, and he promises to give it to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us today. I mean, there's just so much more that could be said, and there's so much more that we need to hear. But, Lord, what we have heard, make us accountable for it. That you love us in spite of our sin. That we have a great high priest in Jesus, one who mediates between us and you. And, Father, that your heart for us truly is that of a Father now that we are in Christ, that you have not put us in the wilderness because you want to abandon us there. Even your correction, as Hebrews says, is meant for our good, and you don't chasten us to the point where we are so discouraged that our faith withers away and we walk away from the Lord. But you've given us every grace that we need. And so even while we're in a season of suffering or hardship, or maybe we're not, we pray that you would take this truth and place it deep within our hearts. Help us, Lord, to know that we can serve even while we suffer. Help us to know the value of the church in protecting us. And help us, Lord, most of all, to trust you to right the wrongs, to bring about justice. You've not called us to take up our hand against our fellow man and to commit a sin I pray, Lord, that you would just make us a church that's humble and dependent upon you and that rejoices in the salvation that you alone give. In Jesus' name, amen.